Welcome to Mike's Amazing World of DC History, the podcast which covers the earliest days of DC Comics. I'm your host, Mike Voiles, the creator of Mike's Amazing World of Comics, a website devoted to comics of all eras. I have a true passion for old DC Comics, and I've always wanted to read everything from the very beginning. To this end, I've been working on putting together a collection of every DC comic ever published. While I have more than 50,000 comics in my collection, I'm still a couple of thousand short of reaching this goal. And boy, those old ones are really expensive. Fortunately, many old DC comics were released on microfiche in the early 1990s. This allows me access to, in one form or another, every DC comic story. So now I'm reading through them in order of publication. In this episode, I'll be focusing on the third title published by DC founder Malcolm Wheeler Nicholson. It also happens to be the title from which the company DC takes its name, Detective Comics. Prior to the publication of Detective Comics No. 1 in early 1937, Nicholson published under the names National Allied, More Fun Incorporated, and Nicholson Publishing Co. However, with debts mounting, Nicholson needed help. He turned to printer, publisher, and distributor Harry Donenfeld, and an agreement was reached. Harry would finance Nicholson, print his comics, and eventually distribute via his company, Independent News. In exchange, Donenfeld and his partner, Jack Leibowitz, became co-owners with the major in a new company, Detective Comics, Inc. As I discussed in my previous episode, the date this deal was finalized was likely sometime in early 1936, as evidenced by this excerpt found in a letter from Nicholson to writer Jerry Siegel, dated March 20th, 1936. We are now assembling our third magazine of the group the financial arrangements of which were settled in a conference today. There will be from four to six pages of work in that for you. Comics need lead time in order for content to be created and organized. During the discussion of my last episode, I mentioned two house ads that appeared for Detective Comics, which showed the cover with a December 1936 cover date. Clearly, the issue was behind schedule. Further evidence of the delays can be found in another letter to Siegel, dated May 13, 1936. We need some more work from you. We are getting out at least one new magazine in July, and possibly two. The first one is definitely in the works. It will contain longer stories and fewer. From you and Schuster, we need 16 pages monthly. Was the original plan to release Detective in July 1936? That schedule seems rather aggressive, especially if more content was still needed to fill out the book. In the end, Detective Comics No. 1 went on sale in February 1937. Another pair of house ads, this time in More Fun No. 19 and New Comics No. 14, announced the title with the correct March 1937 cover date. They used the word swelligant to describe it. That second new magazine that the Major mentions was likely Action Comics, but it would not make the schedule until 1938. The cover of Detective Comics No. 1, drawn by artist and assistant editor Vin Sullivan, depicts a gray-skinned Chinese man with solid white eyes and a thin mustache against a solid red background. The cover text reads, Brand New Action Pack Stories in Color. Of course, like all Nicholson's comics, only portions of the issue were actually in color. There were still many pages that were black and white. Chinese villains were a staple of the pulps in early comics, the most popular of which was Dr. Fu Manchu. More than one story in this issue features Chinese villains. One other thing to note about the cover, it shows the abbreviation SM in small print near the date. This was used by McCall's, Nicholson's original distributor. This also appeared on the Major's other titles, More Fun and New Comics. With issue number two, these letters would disappear, signifying the change in distributor to Donenfeld's Independent News. Detective Comics is also widely acknowledged as the first comic devoted to a single theme. Both More Fun and New Comics contained a mix of genres, as did comics from other publishers. However, a comic known as Detective Dan, released in 1933, may actually hold this distinction. Coincidentally, Siegel and Schuster had hoped to get Detective Dan's publisher, Humor Publishing, to release Superman. 
Humor agreed, but the deal fell through when the publisher opted to discontinue comics publications. Although The Man of Tomorrow was still a year away from his debut, his creators did contribute two other features to Detective Comics. Inside the comic, the inside front cover and page one both feature advertisements from novelty company Johnson Smith & Company. It is extremely odd to open the cover of a comic book and seeing an ad on page one, but this did happen from time to time during the Golden Age. I'm sure Johnson Smith & Co. paid a premium for this space. They would be a frequent advertiser for DC for decades to come. For those of you that would like to check out the stories from Detective Comics number 1, the issue was reprinted in a Millennium Edition in the year 2000. This marks the first issue that I've covered so far that has been reprinted in its entirety. Some earlier features and stories were reprinted, but in most cases, the stories were reprinted in 1945 or earlier and are as hard to find as the originals. While it's great that DC decided to reprint this issue, some reconstruction and recoloring of the artwork was done. While I've seen worse alterations in other DC reprints, I prefer to read it on microfiche. I'm not a big fan of the modern recoloring that has been done to Golden and Silver Age reprints. I want things in their original form, not altered. I'm still waiting for a real version of Star Wars 2, not the 200th fan edit done by George Lucas's evil clone. The first story in Detective Comics number 1 is titled Speed Saunders and the River Patrol. There isn't a byline on this story, but sources including the aforementioned Millennium Edition attribute the story and pencils to E.C. Stoner. The inks are by Craig Flessel. There were two E.C. Stoners around this time. The first was a physicist from England, Edmund Clifton Stoner. The other was Elmer Cecil Stoner, a black man from Pennsylvania. It was the second E.C. Stoner, Elmer Cecil, who wrote and drew this story. That makes him significant as the first black man to work in comic books. Stoner was born in 1897 and spent the years leading up to his comics debut working for Tower Magazines, which distributed through Woolworth stores. His widow also alleges that he was the creator of Mr. Peanut, the planner's marketing icon. Planners, however, does not back up this claim. They officially state Mr. Peanut was born in 1916 when planners offered a prize for the best sketch suitable for adoption as a trademark. A 14-year-old Virginia schoolboy submitted the winning entry, a drawing of a peanut with arms and legs labeled Mr. Peanut. A commercial artist later added the top hat, monocle, and cane. Stoner was definitely not a, the schoolboy since he was not from Virginia and was older than 14. It is possible that he was the commercial artist mentioned. The only evidence to support the statement, circumstantial or otherwise, is the fact that Stoner lived in the same city as Planner's headquarters. His widow also claimed that Stoner was the art director at Tower Magazines, a statement which also lacks supporting evidence. It's possible that Stoner was involved, but it's also possible that these claims are just exaggerations or fictitious family stories. Without further verification of the facts, I think it's hard to definitely link him to Mr. Peanut. This one Speed Saunders story was his only work for DC, but he would later find work at other publishers including Timely, Dell, and eventually Fox, where he worked on the Blue Beetle. In the 1950s, he worked on a syndicated newspaper strip called Rick Kane Space Marshal. After that, Stoner left comics for good. He passed away in 1969. Although largely unknown today, his place in comics history is important, both for contributing the first story to Detective Comics and for being the first African-American comic book artist. Cyril Saunders, a.k.a. Speed Saunders, is a special operative G-man working in a unit of the River Patrol. A relaxing evening for Speed is interrupted by a call to investigate a rash of bodies turning up in the bay. The bodies are all Chinese. Speed starts his investigation in Chinatown. When no clues turn up, he heads for the docks. Weeks of surveillance pay off when he sees the ship of Captain Scum avoid coming into the harbor. With a rented boat, Speed follows Scum's boat to a freighter loaded with men from China. Scum is involved in human trafficking and is throwing the sick ones overboard. Speed single-handedly makes the arrest, then asks his boss for a vacation. 
This first story is just okay. There is a lot of lead up to a very short payoff. The action portion of the strip takes up just a couple of panels and isn't too exciting. That's to be ex somewhat expected for a short six-page story. Stoner's art is pretty good. He plays with shadows a lot. One image on the final page of the story depicts Speed with shadows across his face. The pattern gives him a look reminiscent of Rorschach from The Watchmen. Speed's adventures skip one issue, then resume in Detective Comics number three. By then, Flessel, who did the inking on this story, is credited as the sole artist. I'll be covering more of those stories at a later time. One last note on Speed. His adventures lasted several years, ending in Detective Comics number 58, dated December 1941. After his strip ended, Speed was not used again as a character for decades. Finally, in James Robinson's 1999 series JSA, Speed was reintroduced as the grandfather of Hawk Girl Kendra Saunders, which established him for the first time in the post-crisis DC universe. The next story in Detective Number 1 featured Cosmo, the Phantom of Disguise. The story begins at the palatial manor of Gregory Dillingwater, a noted collector of fine jewels. The millionaire receives a letter from the jewel thief Tarot telling him that his collection will soon be stolen. Dillingwater contacts the police. Captain Burke then contacts Cosmo, who meets with the wealthy man and concocts a plan of action. The reader is told nothing of Cosmo at this point. He is simply a brown-haired man in a striped suit. Following the meeting b between Cosmo and the intended victim, Tarot breaks into the mansion first using the disguise of a peddler, then assuming the identity of Dillingwater's butler, Buckley. As the butler, Thoreau attempts to drug Dillingwater. When he makes a move for the jewels, Cosmo, who had been disguised as the millionaire, goes into action to apprehend the thief. He used the thief's own talent of disguise as a means to trap him. The art on this story was provided by Sven Elvin, who is a veteran Nicholson artist on features such as Captain Quick and the novel adaptations like Treasure Island and She. His artwork is a little stiff in this issue, but as usual, his backgrounds are often quite detailed. It's hard to get a read on this story, just who is Cosmo and what his profession is. Although called in by the police, I get the feeling that he's a freelancer, maybe a private detective. Cosmo was the first of several Masters of Disguise at DC. Others would include King Standish, another Golden Age character from Flash Comics, and much later the human target, Christopher Chance. Based only on this story, I think I prefer the other two. Still, it's early and the strip did last until Detective Comics number 37 in 1940. Cosmo bowed out just as the Boy Wonder was being ushered in. I'll be reading more Cosmo in the near future. Brett Lawton was the first of two black-and-white features from the first issue of Detective. The Millennium Edition credits Craig Flessel as the inker on the story. The pencil credits are listed as unknown. Flessel, who drew Steve Conrad, The Bradley Boys, and Pep Morgan in Nicholson's other comics, is definitely recognizable in the art. The images of characters on the run remind me strongly of his pencils on The Bradley Boys. I wonder if he didn't pencil this one, too. For the first time, at least at DC, this story has a splash page, complete with a framing border of interesting design. A splash page is essentially a page at the beginning which serves to introduce a story. They work sometimes like a second cover, and often the actual meat of the story begins on page two. Modern comics rarely use them. However, they were extremely common during the Silver Age. It was highly unusual to have a splash page at this time, since most features only ran two to four pages. Even splash panels, which took up a small part of the page, were rare. Given that other publishers were largely using newspaper reprints, this is probably the first true splash page in comic books. The image here is of Brett Lawton on horseback, wearing jungle fatigues and a wide-brimmed jungle hat. The text reads, The Ace International Detective is confronted with a series of baffling murders. Mystery and adventure lurk at every step as he penetrates the silent Peruvian jungles. 
Lawton starts his adventure while on vacation in Panama. He travels to Peru after receiving a letter from his friend and mine owner, Tim Morgan. Two men working at the mine have been killed. They are found with a small hole in their flesh, but it isn't a bullet wound. While Brett investigates, the chief engineer, Fred Collins, becomes the third victim. The natives start refusing to work at the mine. Lawton follows clues to a mine shaft in the hills. He and Morgan are observed entering the mine from above by an Inca priest in ceremonial garb. The story continues in color in Detective Comics number 2. It doesn't pick up exactly from where part 1 left off, though. Part 2 begins with another murder, said to be the 8th overall. What happened to numbers 4 through 7? I guess some time passed between issues. Readers are told that Brett has been in Peru for 10 days. During that time, Tim Morgan must have entered witness protection because his name is now Tom Bradley. Name changes like this were pretty common occurrences. Apparently, creators and editors didn't keep track of such things, like the main names of their main characters. Okay. Brett and Tom spot natives watching them from afar. They chase after them, but quickly lose sight. Tonta, one of the natives working at the mine, dies right in front of Brett. Lawton then asks old Pedro about the natives. He offers to lead Brett into the jungle to the location of an old Inca village. On the trip, Pedro's finger is stung. He says it feels like a spider bite and immediately cuts off the entire finger with his knife. <laughs> no joke, and it was depicted on panel, minus any blood, of course. Just then, Brett and Pedro are surrounded by natives. The chief orders them buried in the sand. Their faces are smeared with honey, and they are left for the ants to devour. Brett recognizes the chief's speech as belonging to an American, but the natives are following him. Too bad Brett doesn't speak Hovitos. He could have warned them. In any case, before being buried, Brett used cyanide from a chemical kit to surround the hole. The cyanide kills the ants to prevent their advance. That's mighty convenient. The actual burial isn't depicted, but I can just see it now. Excuse me, Mr. Inca, I just need to open my chemical kit while you're digging that hole. Don't mind me, I'm just pouring this chemical on the ground. No need to worry, yeah, okay. In any case, Tom Bradley comes to the rescue, freeing Brett and Pedro from the sand. In a manner of two panels and one punch to the jaw of the Inca chief, Brett solves the case. He reveals that the man posing as the chief was Spider Malone, a wanted murderer from the States, using poison darts from a blowgun to kill the mine workers. Wow, was that ever contrived? Wouldn't the dead men be found with poison darts still in them? Why was Malone killing the workers? I guess he was posing as the chief to hide from authorities, but what made the natives think he was really their chief? I have no clue. This story was just kind of wacky. Still, kind of fun, and the art was pretty decent. Malcolm Wheeler Nicholson himself wrote the next story, which contains art by Tom Hickey, another artist from More Fun and New Comics. The story is entitled The Claws of the Red Dragon. It is the first part of an eight-part serial starring a man named Nelson. His first name, Bruce, would be revealed in the second installment of the series. The first episode was 13 pages long, which is the longest single chapter of any story to appear in Nicholson's comics to this point. Another second 13-page story would appear later in the same issue. Nelson begins the story by visiting a Chinese restaurant in San Francisco. The restaurant sign has a symbol of a seven-clawed red dragon upon it. Nelson seats himself in the empty restaurant and proceeds to get the worst service imaginable. First he is completely ignored, then a waiter finally does appear, but he has no menu. Nelson finally demands food be brought to him. The waiter disappears, then returns with two place settings for another table. Eventually, a beautiful girl and her father arrive and are seated at that other table. Nelson is rushed by the waiters to leave, while the other diners receive excellent service and food. Curious, Nelson stays despite repeated attempts to get him to leave. Eventually, the waiters make their move anyway. They grab the man and his daughter from behind. Nelson shouts a warning too late. Then he is also bound and gagged. In part two of the story, Bruce is taken by car into the country. The Chinese men throw him out of the car, then drive away. The text claims the car ride lasted about one hour. 
They must have been in the fastest car ever invented, because Nelson is now just outside of New York City. He started in a restaurant in San Francisco. That was some car ride. Wow. It's more likely that Nicholson just forgot where the story was set between issues. Nelson walks down the road until he finds a gas station. From there, he calls the police and hires a cab to take him back to the restaurant. Everyone is cleared out, but the police tell him that the kidnapped man was Eric von Holzendorf and his daughter Sigrid. Bruce goes home and dreams of the girl. He must prefer blondes because she, was, she is blonde in the dream, but she was a brunette in the restaurant. Driven by his vision of Sigrid, Bruce decides to investigate the case himself. He follows a lead to a large estate on Long Island. While sneaking around the compound, the amateur sleuth sees von Holsendorf held captive. He also finds a string of dead Chinese men killed by an assassin. Nelson also finds a safe from which he removes a small jade dragon. When it is discovered missing, the Chinese sound the alarm. While dodging the security guards, Nelson sees a man with a ring of keys. Bruce attacks, knocks out the guard, and tries the keys on near nearby rooms. Inside one of them, he finds Sigrid. Bruce tries to help her escape. Sigrid has reservations about leaving her father behind. They make their way to the basement, and they try to exit via a cellar door. At this point, Bruce is finally caught. He is brought to Chin Lung, a lieutenant of gang leader Lu Gong. Chin makes an offer for Bruce to join them, an offer that is refused. When the assassin causes commotion outside, Bruce is able to raise the police on the telephone. When Chin Lung returns, he has von Hosseldorf brought in. He then uses Sigrid as a bargaining chip to make the both men cooperate. Then a lone policeman arrives, having been interrupted from a trip to a convenience store to buy some Twinkies. The policeman is invited inside, shown that all is quiet, he then leaves. Bruce throws one of the Chinese men out an upper story window to get the attention of the cop. The Chinese men open fire, riddling the police car with bullets. Bruce shouts, Welcome to the party, pal! Oh, wait, I'm sorry, I got this mixed up with another Bruce. The policeman in this story is on a motorcycle, and he just leaves without incident. Bruce and von Holserdorf are then forced to watch the Chinese men turn on Stucky, their American accomplice. They accuse him of stealing the Jade Dragon, which Bruce removed from the safe. They lock him in a small cage with a giant rat. The rat begins biting Stucky, who is restricted by the cage and can't move. Bruce puts a stop to the torture by admitting that he knows where the dragon is. He offers to reveal the information for the safe release of Sigrid. Lugong himself then enters. Bruce seems to have a history with the man that is not explained. Lugong blames von Holsendorf for stealing the red jade dragon from China. He wants to kill Sigrid in front of her father to get even. As a means of torture to both Bruce and the reader, Lugong speaks the longest single piece of dialogue ever to fit in a single word balloon. You show impertinence of a high order in endeavoring in a paltry bargain in a matter that concerns the future of 400 million people. Oh fool, as a babe innocently plays with the hooded adder, do you trifle with death? Well, do I know how you came by the fragment of the sacred imperial jade. Von Holsendorf gave it to you in gratitude for saving his life in Canton, that time he was so nearly in my power, and you accepted it either not knowing or nor not caring the overwhelming value of those missing fragments. With the return of that fragment, your, your error could be forgiven you, but for the theft of the remaining piece, you merit death. It is now nine o'clock. At ten o'clock, von Holzendorf's daughter will begin to pay the penalty for her father's misdeeds. You, too, shall watch her slow dismembering with power only to her end, her suffering by death, by returning all of the sacred jade. Thereafter, you, too, shall follow her into the kingdom of shadows quickly and without torture as a reward. Should you... Be obdurate after one of or the other has ended his sufferings, you shall die to the death of seven heavenly gates. I have spoken. Wow, 
One panel. Seriously, folks. After the long, boring speech, Bruce is depicted dead on the floor with blood streaming out of his ears. Oh no, that isn't Bruce. That was me. <laughs> Simply horribly written dialogue. And really long. Sigurd is then brought into the room and tied to a chair. The torturer prepares his tools. Meanwhile, the assassin, who has already been in the building, kills one of the men guarding Bruce. Together, they surprise Lugong's forces. Bruce rescues Sigrid, but Lugong and Chin Lung escape. After a single panel of confusing action, we get three pages of exposition explaining why the Jade was so important. <gasps> Yawn. Bruce and Sigrid then make nice. The end. This was an awful story. It suffered from some of the worst pacing I've ever seen in a comic. Pages upon pages are used to show a single action. Then, the real action is crammed into a couple of panels. I literally started dozing off about partway through the second chapter. The plot was weak and needed paragraphs of exposition for every little point. Even after reading it all, I find that I did not care one bit. In concept, the story might have had potential. My problem was with the execution. Uh, I prefer the execution of the writer in this case. <laughs> it just wasn't written in a way that worked in a visual medium. I'm torn on the artwork. Sometimes it was pretty good and effective at telling the story. However, it was overpowered and interrupted by large blocks of boring text, which just kills any energy the artwork had. Sigrid was drawn rather attractively, including a somewhat racy scene of her in her underwear in Part 5. Racy for the times, anyway. Tame by modern standards. Overall, I guess Hickey's art was fair, but I don't think the artist could have saved this strip. I don't think any artist could. I was relieved when the story ended in Detective Comics number 8. Unfortunately, Bruce's adventures would continue for months to come. His series lasted until Detective Comics number 36. I can only hope that it gets better. If I can stomach them, I'll cover more in a future episode. From long and convoluted to short and simple, the next feature in Detective was called Gumshoe Gus by Bill Patrick on Coyote in New Comics and Hubert from More Fun. Gus is a police detective who's fond of telling stories about his own prowess at catching crooks, even if the stories he tells aren't exactly true. He is sent to the home of Mrs. Gotlocks to protect her jewels during a swanky party. When he spots a man carrying pearls in his pocket, Gus smacks him in the head with a baton. The butler identifies the victim of the smack as the police commissioner who was just helping the wealthy woman protect the jewels. The story tries to be humorous and was clearly intended as such, but I can't say it was really funny. A second gumshoe Gus tale appears in Detective Comics number 2. It's much better than the first. In that one, Gus is teased about his assignment to locate a missing duck at the Beekman home. Gus arrives at the house and questions Mr. Beekman and his nephews. There are several clever word plays used during the conversation. The end of the strip shows Gus finding a note from Gloria the duck. It reads, Dear Master, Two weeks ago you took me to see a Mickey Mouse picture. There, for the first time, I saw the man of my dreams. I'm on the way to Hollywood to see Donald Duck. The sight of him alone was enough to make every feather in my breast quiver. Goodbye, Gloria. Two more gumshoe Gus strips appeared in Detective Number 6 and 7. In one, Gus went, goes to a nut house, and another he is asked to play a detective in a wealthy woman's play. Both are decent gags. Patrick's art is kind of plain but passable. The last thing I want to mention is the title heading. It depicts Gus holding a young boy at gunpoint. I think it's an odd image used to introduce the feature, especially since nothing like that happens in any of the episodes. The image is repeated in each issue except for number six. Another humorous strip to appear in the first issue was called Eagle-Eyed Jake by Alger, a pseudonym for artist Russell Cole. Jake is an amateur sleuth with buck teeth who got his detective training from a mail-order course. He is generally considered a joke by everyone. When the Got Rocks pearls are stolen, detectives from all over are stumped by the case. 
As a joke, Jake is given a chance to investigate. Instead of searching for the thief, he tries to establish that the jewels actually existed in the first place. Eventually, Mrs. Gottrocks confesses that there were no pearls to be stolen. Despite his seemingly goofy demeanor, Jake earns universal fame for solving the case. The strip is drawn in typical Russell Cole style, with short squat people in the foreground with minimal backgrounds. This is the same style he used on his strips for more fun and new comics, which included Goofo the Great and Sam the Porter. It's a very comedic style, which lends itself well to this kind of strip. I especially like Mrs. Gotrox's dog. The story is told in rhyme, which is a bit silly at first, but less obvious and obtrusive as it progresses. I liked it. While this is the only appearance of eagle-eyed Jake, Cole spins a different four-page mystery tale in most of the early issues of Detective Comics. Each story features a different character. Only Bloodhound Brown from Detective Comics number 8 would rate a second appearance. He also appeared in More Fun Comics number 35. The last of the comedy strips was called Silly Sleuths. It, it was a single-page gag that appeared in Detectives number 1, 2, 5, and 7. The feature carried no byline. The Detective Comics number 1 Millennium Edition claims the art was by Fred Schwab, who would draw strips like Butch the Pup, and the last year or so of Don Coyote. However, when I look at the art on these strips, I don't think that Schwab actually drew them. These clearly look like the work of Vin Sullivan, who is drawing Spike Spaulding over in More Fun. This was a year earlier than Schwab's earliest strips for DC, although he was drawing a comic called Star Ranger, published by Centaur. I believe the credits in the Millennium Edition are wrong. Sullivan probably drew these. Silly Sleuths itself is not a story. Instead, it's just a series of unrelated gag panels. These are similar to what Sullivan was drawing for the centerfolds in more fun and new comics at the time. Buck Marshall was a cowboy detective strip by artist Homer Fleming, yet another veteran from Nicholson's other books. Clearly, Detective Comics was being done by an all-star team of the best existing artists at National, rather than new artists that had been springing up in the other two books. In 1937, the number of new artists doing work was decreasing in general at National, but on Detective, it was all established guys, which is another reason why I think it's unlikely that Schwab was responsible for the last strip. In any case, Buck Marshall, Range Detective, is a six-page black-and-white story. Buck rides into town to visit his friend, the Sheriff, who has been having trouble with cattle rustlers. Sanders, the owner of the Bar S Ranch, has been accusing Volk, the owner of a rival ranch, of stealing his cattle. Buck goes undercover as Sam Wilson and takes a job as a ranch hand working for Sanders. When he is sent to the outskirts of the ranch to mend fences, Buck sees men branding a calf and chasing it onto Volk's land. Meanwhile, Sanders and the sheriff show up on Volk's ranch to inspect the cattle. When the calf is found, the sheriff arrests Volk. However, Buck is able to prove that it was a setup. Sanders framed Volk because he wouldn't sell him his land. When Buck exposes Sanders, the ranch owner tries to run, but he is stopped by a bullet from the sheriff's gun. This is pretty straightforward cowboy tale. Cowboys and westerns were popular for, with kids for decades. They were often the subjects of books and movie serials. Fleming frequently drew these type of strips, including one I've already covered, Captain Jim from New Comics. This one is miles ahead of Captain Jim, which bored me silly. This one was short and sweet. My only real complaint is that the cowboys tended to be more or less all the same. If it wasn't for the fact that the dialogue identified them, I would probably be unable to distinguish between them. Fleming drew this feature for three years until it ended in Detective Comics number 36. He left DC at that point to go to its sister company, All-American, where he would take over drawing the whip in Flash Comics. Of all the features that appeared in Detective Comics number one, only one of them made its debut elsewhere. That feature was Siegel and Schuster's Spy, starring Bart Regan. The first appearance of Regan took place almost a year earlier in a comic not even published by National. It appeared in Man and Cook's Comics Magazine number two under the title Federal Agent. 
Mann and Cook were former editors for Wheeler Nicholson, who left the company in early 1936 to start their own publishing company. Their first couple of offerings of the comics magazine contained pages originally intended for publication at National. Issue number one included a Dr. Colt story published under the name Dr. Mystic. It can be reasonably assumed that the Bart Regan story was originally submitted for, by Siegel and Schuster for publication and taken by the exiting editors when they left the company. This may have been done in lieu of payment since Nicholson was no notorious for not paying his employees. In that first adventure, Bart Regan, federal agent, is conducting a demonstration on how to spot counterfeit bills to teach other agents. However, it is pointed out that the supposedly real bill he is using for comparison was also a fake. A stamp on the bill is a well-known trademark of engraver Henry Martin. Bart investigates and suspects the crooks have forced Henry to counterfeit for them. The feds surround Henry's summer home where the crooks are holed up. Henry actually saves the day himself by planting dynamite in the crook's bag after they shoot him and leave him for dead. The crooks are blasted into oblivion and Martin is taken to the hospital. So in the first story, Regan is pretty much a chump who didn't realize he was carrying counterfeit currency. Then he doesn't even stop the crooks. The victim does it himself. Good job, federal agent. When the strip debuted in Detective Comics, the title became Bart Regan Spy. It begins with Bart being discharged as a federal agent. Based on his performance in the first adventure, that seems pretty appropriate to me. However, Regan learns that he is actually being transferred to a secret spy detail. Bart is forced to give up his old life, including his girlfriend, Sally Norris. He actually calls her to break it off. However, Sally does not give up easy. She starts following him and crashes a swanky party, which Bart is attending undercover to get information from Olga Balanoff, a suspected thief of military secrets. Sally ne nearly blows Bart's cover when she approaches him at the party. Regan ditches her, then takes Olga home. Sally follows. At the apartment, Olga tries to drug Bart, who swipes a tiny bronze figurine. Then, there is a commotion outside where Sally and the cab driver have gotten into an argument because Sally can't pay her bill. Bart rushes outside where he finds Sally beating the cab driver into the ground. He takes her home, leaving Olga behind. Bart tries again to push Sally away. To get even, she calls Phil Marsden and offers to marry him the very next day. Bart attends the wedding. When vows are about to be made, the minister pulls out a gun and abducts Sally. He is really a spy working with Olga Balanoff. Olga wants to know who Bart is, but Sally refuses to tell her. Back at the church, Marsden blames Regan for the wedding disaster. He believes Bart hired the man to abduct Sally and calls the police. They speak to Bart's boss at the agency, who disavows any knowledge of Regan. The police begin a manhunt. Bart has returned to Olga's apartment and is caught by the spies who demand the return of the bronze figurine. Bart stalls for time, then knocks a flower pot out a window where it strikes a passing patrolman in the head. The cop runs upstairs and saves Regan. However, he also tries to arrest Bart for kidnapping. Olga tricks the cop and escapes. Back at headquarters, other agents have solved the riddle of the figurine. The spies have coded messages in hieroglyphics inscribed upon it. Bart, now free from the police, is dispatched to an airport on an urgent mission. Once again, Sally has outsmarted him and finds a way onto the plane. Bart finally admits that he is now a spy. They part ways in New York, with Sally agreeing to return home. But before leaving, she spots Olga Balanoff at the airport. Sally follows Olga to a hotel. Bart finds her there before it's too late. Then he stops Olga and her men from assassinating a diplomat. Sally helps by hitting one of the crooks over the head. Several days later at headquarters, Bart runs into Sally again. This time, his boss informs him that she has accepted a position to become a spy herself. This story runs through Detective Comics number 5 and represents a big leap forward for writer Jerry Siegel. His pacing has improved dramatically from earlier scripts and the writing seems to fit better with a visual medium. 
Scenes from this story are very similar to ones that would later be used in Superman stories. For example, the scene in which Bart is fired looks very much like a scene played out at the desk of Daily Star editor George Taylor with Bart in the role of Clark Kent. The scene at the swanky ball reminded me of a club scene from Action Comics number no. 1 in which, Clark's, in which Clark Kent takes Lois on a date. Schuster's artwork here has crystallized into the form it would take during Superman's debut. The other strong links to Superman come in the form of Sally Norris. She is a spitfire and reminded me greatly of Lois Lane, both in her daring and dogged pursuit of Bart. Though for Lois, it was the pursuit of a story that mattered. Bart's use of a dual identity in this story that is repeatedly put into jeopardy by Sally is another theme which Superman would come to rely upon. The dynamics between Sally and Bart really worked for me. I'm happy to see some better characterization finally starting to creep into stories. This is my favorite Siegel and Schuster feature so far. Bart Regan's adventures continue until 1941. Siegel wrote them all, but Schuster ceded the art chores to other men in 1939 to focus solely on the Man of Steel. More coverage of Bart Regan and Sally Norris will be forthcoming in future episodes of this podcast. Siegel and Schuster were also responsible for the last feature to debut in Detective Comics No. 1. Of all the features to appear in Nicholson's comics up to this point, this one would be the most successful. Of course, that feature was Slam Bradley. Slam's genesis dates back to May of 1936. In this excerpt from a letter from the Major to Jerry Siegel, Wheeler Nicholson describes what he wants the character to be in the new strip. We want a detective hero called Slam Bradley. He is to be an amateur called by in by the police to help unravel difficult cases. He should combine both brains and brawn, be able to think quickly and reason cleverly, and be able as well to slam-bang his way out of a barroom brawl or mob attack. Take every opportunity to show him in a torn shirt with swelling biceps and a powerful torso, a la Flash Gordon. Siegel and Schuster often receive sole credit for creating Slam. However, this letter suggests to me that it was Nicholson who actually came up with the concept and many of the important details surrounding the strip. Siegel provided the script and Schuster the art, but I think the major deserves at least a share of the creative credit for Slam Bradley. This first story wastes no time getting to the action. It opens with Slam in combat with several Chinese men. He has taken them on four at a time and winning. When Police Sergeant Kelly arrives, he breaks up the fight which annoys Slam, who was enjoying himself. Kelly tells Slam he is wanted at police headquarters. There, we are introduced to Shorty Morgan, a pint-sized pest who took a mail-order scientific detection course. Now he wants to be Slam's assistant, but Slam literally tosses him aside. Apparently, Shorty took the same course as Eagle-Eyed Jake from the Alger story. In any case, the Chief introduces Slam, still wearing his ripped-up shirt from the fight, to Rita Carlisle, the daughter of a chain store owner. Rita wants to hire Slam to guard her pet dog, Mimi. Slam is insulted and pawns the job off on Shorty. Shorty is disappointed at playing guard to a small dog. However, when he joins Rita on a trip to Chinatown, his boss disappears. He calls Slam for help. Slam starts busting up the shop in which Rita disappeared until the Chinese owner points him in, in the direction of a secret passage through which Rita was abducted. Slam and Shorty enter the passage and do battle with several Chinese men. Slam finds Rita, who is wearing the same dress worn by Sally Norris in the spy story. It's also the same dress worn by Lois Lane in Action Comics number no. 1. Apparently, that's what Schuster liked to draw. In any event, Slam single-handedly dispatches the kidnappers, including one scene in which he swings a Chinese man around by his ponytail. Ouch. The leader of the group is Fui on Yui, I know that's a ridiculous name. He runs away, but Shorty has covered the floor with tar, impeding the fleeing chi Chinese man. Slam gets a kiss from the girl and offers Shorty a partnership, a partnership that would last the entire run of Slam's original series. 
While I think Bart Regan's strip was an example of Siegel's plot and characterization, in Slam Bradley, Siegel, aided by Schuster's dynamic art, really captures exciting action for the first time. Slam wades into the bad guys with swinging fists and laughs off the danger. He is Superman, minus the costume and alien origin. In many ways, I think Superman is a blending of existing elements from both Spy and Slam Bradley thrown into a blender with a science fiction origin. Superman already existed at this point, but had yet to be published. Given that, I wonder if Siegel just decided to use some of these elements in the stories he was actually getting published. Or did these elements he was trying out in Detective help to give him practice on what would eventually be published in Superman? I believe the Man of Steel would have been a different animal had the other strips not preceded it. I think Jerry's writing was definitely improving. As for this story itself, there are some elements that make me cringe, like the Chinese men drawn very stereotypically and the racial slurs. Shorty brings some humor to the strip, but he's annoying like most sidekicks. He does help to balance the story. In, in future episode, he actually does start growing on me. One thing to note is that Shorty represents the first true sidekick character at DC, so likely he's the first comic book sidekick. There may have been some that preceded him in comic strips. Often, sidekicks are thought of as kids, like Robin or Speedy. But in the Golden Age, there were plenty of adult sidekicks. In addition to Shorty, there was Stripesky from Star Spangled Kid, there was Doiby Dickles in Green Lantern, and Stretch Skinner from Wildcat. Looking beyond DC, there was also Woozy Winks in Plastic Man. Often these characters were used to inject humor into the action. Schuster's artwork on Slam was very much like that that would appear in Superman. There was a range of different angles and shots used. He's becoming a really good storyteller. Slam continued to appear in Detective Comics until issue 152 in 1949. A sizable run considering he debuted before and outlasted many of the costumed Golden Age heroes. As with many of Siegel and Schuster's other features, they were handed off to other creators when demand for more and more Superman material was made a priority. Schuster drew Slam's adventures through Detective Comics number 32. Siegel stayed on as writer until number 55. After the end of Slam's regular feature, he was unused as a character for decades. However, he was revived for a one-shot story in Detective Comics number 500, published in 1981. That story teamed many backup characters from past issues of Detective Comics in a single tale. Slam met Jason Bard, Roy Raymond, Christopher Chance, Powwow Smith, Misto, and Captain Compass in this adventure. Now, if you recall from my coverage of the Dr. Occult, uh, stories several episodes ago, I contend that it is the fact that a character is shown to exist in a shared universe that officially makes them a part of the DC universe. That's what the tale in Detective 500 does. It establishes Slam in the DC universe. But wait, Jason Bard, Roy Raymond, and Christopher Chance were all established on Earth-1 in the pre-crisis universe. Slam's interaction with them means that he also exists on Earth-1. Since he never met any Earth-2 characters, I submit that he exists solely on Earth-1. This retroactively makes his adventure in Detective Comics number 1 the very first appearance of Earth-1. I know that there are people out there who would argue with me about that. Earth-1 wasn't identified by name until Justice League of America number 21 in 1963, after being shown as a different place in Flash number 123. But just because it wasn't identified by name, doesn't mean it didn't already exist. But seeing as, as how I'm super excessive about such things, I'm happy to call Slam the first Earth-1 character, just as Dr. Occult was the first Earth-2 character. Apparently, my call for more email was heard by at least a couple of people. Let me share a couple letters that I received from my last episode. Hi Mike, the show continues to be fascinating. I got my hands on some new fun issues from around issue 8 to 29, and have been enjoying these relics of the pre-Golden Age immensely. 
the pre-house style look of these, these books is something I appreciate, even when some of the work is super crude. It, is, it has a life and verb that is so, sorely lacking in modern comic books. A lot of Caniff and Raymond wannabes, and the more I see, the more I am realizing that comic creators came out of folks who weren't quite skilled enough to work in, the comic, stri in comic strips. Whenever there is a new installment, I make sure to plug it on my almost daily internet radio quackreversal satellite. The charm of these early comics is a wonderful thing. Simple stories, quick entertainment, as opposed to modern ones, which continue their journey into continuity-driven crap that is only comprehensible to the few fanatics who read the last three years of books. Comics really need to be cautious in the current paradigm of comics, all being of some sort of minor leagues for graphic novel and movie and TV industry. Keep up the amazing work, P.Q. River. Thanks for the letter, P.Q. I hate to say it, but comics have already become the minor leagues for the movie industry. It seems that all, that's all people care about these days. I keep running into people claiming to be comics fans, but all they really want to talk about is the upcoming Captain America movie, or how god-awful the Superman movies are. I hate that. Comics are a medium and an art form and should be appreciated for what they are. Instead, everyone just wants the latest movie buzz. I'm afraid that finding, I'm finding more and more that the approach taken by companies, creators, and other fans in regards to modern comics simply doesn't align with, with what I value anymore. Fortunately, I have oodles of old comics to keep me entertained. The next letter comes from Jason Venable. Hey Mike, this is Jason from the podcast that goes snicked. I've been enjoying the show so far. The panels you posted from episode 9 were, well, wow. <laughs> I was also intrigued by the Blood Pearls story. Is there anywhere online that you know where I could see a part of it? Or could you just throw up a panel or two? Thanks for the show, Jason. Thanks for your comments, Jason. Yes. There were some crazy things going on in those 1936 stories. I've added a Blood Pearl sample to the show notes from last episode. Enjoy, and good luck with your own show. If you have comments, questions, or criticisms about my show, I'd like to hear from you. Send your feedback to dchistory at mikesamazingworld.com or click the link in the show notes. That's going to conclude my coverage of Detective Comics number one. Stories were longer than in previous comics. Slam Bradley and the Claws of the Red Dragon topped out at 13 pages each, which would eventually become the standard for lead stories. Longer stories and fewer per issue was a theme that would re be repeated in other comics from 1937. I'll be covering those in future episodes. The debut of Superman is right around the corner, too, so keep your eyes peeled for more episodes in the very near future, including a few surprises. Thanks to Two True Freaks for distributing my show. Please check out other great podcasts on their network. Also, don't forget to visit my website, Mike's Amazing World of Comics, for all sorts of great comic info. I'll return soon with another fact-filled episode of Mike's Amazing World of DC History.